Good evening. Good evening. Shh. You know, I. Shh. You know, Tom Palmer always says to say shh. I always think that's condescending, but it really does work. Um, I'm Peter Gettler. I'm the president of Cato. I've told this story before about how I became the president of Cato. I was a longtime uh, check writer to the institute. We were donors for about 15 years, and I was invited to join the board. My first board meeting, they told me to get there at 9 o'clock. Turns out the board meeting started at 8.30. By the time I got there, they had elected me president of Cato. <laughs> so a cautionary tale for anyone joining a nonprofit board. We ended today on a bit of a, thanks to Bob Trento, a bit of a pessimistic note. Um, it's easy to get pessimistic. Our government tells us how much water we can put in our toilets. I always flush twice, just to... Uh... <laughs> they also tell us, they regulate what the size of holes in Swiss cheese have to be. They do, yes. Yeah. Which, if they're going to tell me the size of the holes in my Swiss cheese, I have a two-word response beginning with the letter F. Um, I also attended a conference a few years ago where there was a, a video that told how the, in the EU they rate, they they, uh, they uh, have rate, they regulate the size of bananas that can be sold to consumers, and they showed a funny video about this. And the video is a YouTube video. It was called Size Matters. And, and I've only seen that video once because they warned us, do not Google size matters. <laughs> it is easy to be pessimistic. And if we didn't know that, that uh, eternal vigilance is the price of freedom, we all wouldn't be doing the things we're doing. Um, but I also think, uh, I'm not so quite so pessimistic. I think there are lots of reasons for optimism. I think we tend to depress ourselves. I meet with donors or prospective donors who sometimes are depressed and say, we're doomed. I've never known an army that could take a hill beginning with saying they were doomed. Um, so I think being optimistic is a big part of winning. And I think there are things to be optimistic about, or at least things aren't as bad as we always make them out to be. In uh, fiscal year 1980, on the eve of the Reagan revolution, uh, federal government spending in the United States as a percentage of GDP was about 21.5%. In fiscal year 1992, when the sun had set on the Reagan revolution, federal spending as a proportion of GDP was around 21.5%. In the current fiscal year, which I hope is not the dawn of the Trump revolution, um, the uh, federal spending as a percent of GDP is about 21.5%. Now, GDP has grown, uh, so it's not something that we should be happy about, but maybe sometimes things aren't as bad as we make them out to be. In response to Bob's question, uh, Bob McDonald mentioned that, uh, you know, social tolerance has increased. And I, for one, when I see pictures in the newspaper, as that was happening, of, uh, of two men or two women who are finally allowed to be married and to see the looks of joy on their faces, I think that there are some things that are going well in the world. When I consider the fact that it's now well recognized that the educational establishment doesn't have the interests of students at heart, uh, and you know, 25 or 30 years ago there was one school choice program in the United States, and now we have school choice programs of variable quality in about half the states, and about 400,000 students <laughs> studying pursuant to those programs. That's a reason for optimism. We have a lot, a long way to go in reforming our educational system, but there's recognition of the problem, and significant reforms are taking place. I think we're finally waking up to the fact that um, we like, you know, when we watch the Olympics, we know the United States likes to be number one, being number one in incarceration is not a title that we really aspire to. And we're finally waking up to all the things that are wrong with our criminal justice system and are beginning in the early stages of, of reform. And we clearly have uh, recognized the intersection of those problems with, uh, with the prohibition um, policies that we have on, on drugs, which have, have made a, a, you know, a bad problem you know, much, much worse. So I think that there are reasons for optimism. One of the great reasons for optimism 
is all the fantastic people that we have working to try to advance freedom. And we're so appreciative of all of you uh, who are here and uh, participating in the program and taking you know, all of these discussions and lessons home with you to uh, discuss and debate with people at the cocktail parties and dinners you'll be attending. Um, I also have just so much respect for my colleagues who have dedicated their lives to trying to advance liberty. Uh, Tom alluded to our, our fantastic conference staff, but you know, Mackenzie Johnson, Tom Roth, uh, Katie Ranville is here, uh, Grace, Grace Meyer, I'm probably leaving someone out, but uh, just a fantastic team. Thanks so much for all your effort. And there are a lot of people back in Washington. Also, the great lecturers, Steve Davies, Rob McDonald, just really fantastic. Um, Chris Preble last night. And of course, great recognition to a man I guess I'll call the Chancellor of Cato University, uh, Dr. Tom Palmer. Um, I can't say that we've saved the best for last because that might seem insulting to the previous speakers, but I do think you're in for a treat. Uh, but before I introduce David Bowes, I'd like to say a couple of words about Cato. It's a difficult environment. You know, we get buffeted with complaints that uh, we're too hard on Trump. We're not hard enough on Trump. Um, we get uh, in debates with supporters who try to convince us that, you know, we're not thinking the right way about this issue or that issue. Um, we have discussions with sponsors who say, uh, because of our particular points of view on certain issues, they are not going to support us anymore. The message I usually have for them is that if Cato begins to agree with you on, uh, on every issue, that's probably the time when you should stop supporting us because it's Cato's adherence to principle, it's dedication to independence and nonpartisanship over four decades that make the Institute truly unique. I think that you know, we aspire to be the most credible and persuasive voice for liberty in Washington. And you don't do that if you decide you're going to be part of the red team or the blue team. And over my years of uh, being a sponsor of Cato and now an employee, I know that everyone who works at the Institute is absolutely committed to maintaining the Institute's commitment to, to principle and calling out politicians uh, when we disagree with them. Um, calling them out when our institutions are under attack by either Republican or Democratic administrations. I think that's uh, really what you expect from us. And that's the only way. Liberty, liberty will not advance if it's just a dynamic of the red team and the blue team each trying to beat each other into submission. And I don't think any individual has played more of a role in safeguarding Cato's commitment to principle over the four decades the Institute has been in existence than David Bowes. Um, David has committed his entire life to the cause of advancing liberty. He has dedicated more than half his life to Cato. It was a really proud moment a year and a half ago uh, when in the springtime we recognize staff members who have uh, reached significant milestones of their tenure at Cato and I was able to hand David his plaque for uh, 35 years of service to Cato. No one uh, plays a bigger role at keeping Cato principled um, in maintaining the quality of our intellectual product and our scholarship and uh, keeping Cato sharp and keep, you know, maintaining the things that, that keep Cato Cato than, than David. I consider him our chief intellectual officer and our chief quality officer, and he is really one of the, the MVPs, um, along with Tom and other colleagues, in the, uh, the fight to advance liberty. So please join me in welcome to the podium, David Bowes.
Thank you, Peter, and thanks to all of you for being here and sticking it out, and I hope we'll see uh, some of you in Boston, New Orleans, and Rancho Bernardo next year. Uh, and of course, we have events all the time in Washington. If you're ever coming to Washington, check our website. There's probably something going on at Cato at that time. Um, I, don't, I don't think you've saved the best for last. You've had some very good lectures uh, this weekend. And I realize I'm the only thing standing between you and being able to say, well, thank God that's over. So. I'll uh, try not to keep you forever. Um, let me start by asking, actually, as Tom did uh, on the first night of this, why do we study history? And more particularly, why do libertarians want to study history? And let me suggest some reasons that will overlap with the reasons Tom talked about. First, we study some topics for the same reason that there is a Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington to remind ourselves never again. Never again will we let this happen. <clears throat> Unfortunately, whenever I say that, I am reminded of Anne Applebaum, who wrote the book Gulag and has a new book out on Stalin's famine in Ukraine, who said, this book was not written so that it will not happen again, as the cliche would have it. This book was written because it almost certainly will happen again. So that's probably the most depressing line in my speech. So from here, it ought to be uphill. Second, as the American founders understood, the study of history is our best guide to the present and the future. And as Tom said on opening night, in his great give me liberty or give me death speech, Patrick Henry also said, I have but one lamp by which my feet are guided, and that is the lamp of experience. I know of no way of judging the future but by the past. The founders were close students of the ancient republics and the history of England. They traced their own demands to the ancient and undoubted rights of Englishmen, and beyond that to the common law, Magna Carta, and the popular assemblies of the early English peoples. As one historian wrote, the history made by the American revolutionaries was in part the product of the history they read. The founders understood that freedom is best defended when a philosophical claim is supported by a historical claim. From their study of history, they learned the ancient rights of Englishmen, the importance of individual virtue in preserving freedom, and the dangers of power and thus the necessity of confronting, of constraining and dividing it. This skepticism about power is one of the fundamental characteristics of the liberal outlook. In my uh, collection, The Libertarian Reader, the first section is called Skepticism About Power, worrying about what happens to people who have power. Consider Hamilton's warning in Federalist 75 about the powers of the president in foreign affairs a warning of particular relevance in our own time. The history of human conduct does not warrant that exalted opinion of human virtue, which would make it wise in a nation to commit interests of so delicate and momentous a kind as those which concern its intercourse with the rest of the world to the sole disposal of a magistrate created and circumstanced as would be a president of the United States. Founders understood the dangers of power, and especially of giving power to one man. History helps us to understand the development of our civilization, including the ideas that shape it. And often, the ideas that we now regard as universal principles arose in specific and particular circumstances. Magna Carta and similar medieval charters reflect the struggle to constrain the power of kings, as Tom discussed, and as he also discussed, from such guarantees of specific liberties, liberty eventually emerged. The rights guaranteed in the Bill of Rights reflected particular historical experiences with religious wars, censorship, confiscation of property, the Star Chamber, and the constant tendency of government to seek more power and aggrandize itself. Third, 
people get much of their understanding of government and policy from history. The way we view the Constitution, the Industrial Revolution, the robber barons, the New Deal, and other historical events shapes our understanding of the present. And far too often these days, our public institutions, such as schools and universities, fail to give students a proper appreciation for the great achievement of the founders in creating a society in which government is constrained by law. Instead, we get revisionist accounts of Washington and Jefferson and hagiographic treatment of the Roosevelts, all of it part of a triumphalist account of the growing accumulation of power in Washington. American students need to learn about the greatness of America, but that requires an understanding of what makes a nation great. Is America great because we put a man on the moon or defeated Saddam Hussein? Or is America great because it's the country that has offered more freedom to more people to pursue their own happiness than any other nation on earth? That's the important lesson that we want people to learn from history. Now let me talk about one great founder for a few minutes, and I'll start with a story from one of those ancient republics that the founders studied. When the nation was in trouble, its leaders desperately sent for a great man to take the reins of the army. He left his fields and his family, went to the capital city, defeated his country's enemies, and returned to his farm. That man was Cincinnatus, and for his incredible achievement, serving as commander of the army and literally dictator, and then giving up power when his task was done, he became a hero not just to Romans, but to lovers of liberty down through the ages. No one else did that, not Caesar or Charlemagne or Cromwell, until George Washington. We remember Washington as the first president, but we may forget what that meant. He wasn't just the first of many at the time. He didn't know that. It's not like the 29th replacing the 28th. He had to launch a new nation and to establish the rules for a republic. And we forget how new that was. He and his colleagues had to figure out what a republic was, how it operated, what it looked like. The only contemporary models for rules, customs, manners, forms of address were monarchies. They had to decide how the president should dress, how the president should be addressed by other people. What are his powers? What are the powers of others? What are the norms by which he should conduct himself? And mostly, he had to decide how the president of a republic should act with regard to other heads of state, Congress, governors of the states, the people. And now we take his models for granted, but they weren't models at the time. He had to come up with those models along with John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, and other people. Washington had the kind of values you'd want in a first president, or indeed a 45th. What kind of values are we talking about? Well, first I think what's interesting is that Washington was a man of commercial values. He was a farmer, he ran an estate, he was a businessman, he was an enthusiast for commerce. He was a man of the enlightenment, he believed in scientific farming, he had a lot of books on scientific farming. His letters on running Mount Vernon during his presidency are longer than his letters on running the government. Of course, in 1795, more people worked at Mount Vernon than worked in the executive branch of the federal government. He was also a liberal and tolerant man, a man of the Enlightenment, a man of the liberal revolution. And I think the best example of that is his letter to the Hebrew congregation of Newport, which you saw up on the big screen, but I'm gonna read again the one key sentence in that. It is now no more that toleration is spoken of as if it were the indulgence of one class of people that another enjoyed the exercise of their inherent natural rights. For happily, the government of the United States which gives to bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance, requires only that they who live under its protection should demean themselves as good citizens in giving it on all occasions their effectual support. So not only was he saying, we establish this nation for religious freedom, 
and we guaranteed that in the First Amendment. But he made an even more subtle point. We, are, we Christian Americans are not tolerating the existence of Jews and the practice of Judaism in our country. It is not up to us to decide to tolerate you and your practices. Everyone in this nation is equal under the law. He was also a Republican man, and of course I use that with a small r, a man suited to live in a republic, suited to lead a republic. And that again was a new thing. They, they had models from Athens and Rome that they thought about, but those were ancient times. They're trying to create a republic in modern times after the changes in the world that Benjamin Constant would write about a few years later of the difference between ancient republics based on slave economies and a modern republic based on commerce, even though slavery was still part of, part of that new republic. Perhaps Washington's greatest service was his resignations from office. Gary Wills called him a virtuoso of resignations. Well, that was a good thing to be. It was an important thing to be. After the Revolutionary War, the British were driven out of the United States, and Washington was the commander of the army, which was the only power in the United States. There was a Congress, but Washington was the commander of the army, which remained for some time in the field because there was wrapping up to do, and they were still working on the treaty over in England. And you can imagine how long it took to send back to, the, to, to uh, uh, New York uh, for, the, for instructions on what to offer in Paris, um, long, slow process to draw up this treaty. So after the war, Washington is in command of the army. Many people wanted him to be king. Others just assumed that he would be. That's what people do when they're conquerors. You conquer your enemies and then you become the king. Um, we cannot understand the period at the end of the Revolutionary War unless we take seriously the possibility of some sort of monarchy arising in America. We've forgotten that now. We're not a monarchy. We've never been a monarchy. We weren't going to be, but we could have been. It was not a certain thing. In 1782, after Yorktown, but before the treaty has been concluded, a colonel in the army wrote to Washington to argue that Congress had shown the weakness of republics and to urge Washington to recognize this and become king. And Washington's letter in response is scathing. I cannot imagine, he says, what in my character or actions could have led you to think that such a letter would be welcome to me. Please never mention this to me or to anyone else again. This is not what we fought for. Very important thing to have done, an important thing that hardly any conqueror had ever done. And then a year after that, as you heard um, yesterday, I think, um, there was the officers' revolt at Newburgh, New York. The army is parked up here in Newburgh, Newburgh New York along the Hudson River and the officers are upset because they haven't been paid for a long time because the Continental Congress didn't have many sources of money. And so they get together in a tent and they are having a little town meeting there to discuss, you know, maybe we ought to just march on wherever the army, wherever the Congress was at that time, Philadelphia, I guess. We ought to just march on them and demand the money and, and maybe we should just take control because Congress obviously can't run this country. And as you can see over at the new Museum of the American Revolution, a few blocks from here, or as Rob McDonald talked about, Washington came late to the meeting, he walked in, he walked to the podium, and after talking about how this is not what we spent six years in the field to accomplish, he did, Washington was a showman, he liked theater, he liked to present theater to the troops, um, and he understood the benefit of showing up at the Continental Congress in his old military uniform. He understood what it meant to sit high in the horse. He, he got this kind of um, showmanship. So he takes out a letter to read. He knows what's in the letter. He doesn't need to read the letter. He looks at it. Then he pulls out his spectacles. He puts them on and he says, 
Gentlemen, you will forgive me, for it seems that I have grown not merely gray, but almost blind in your service. And as I think Rob said, reports are there was not a dry eye in the house. The officers were ashamed of themselves, and that was probably the last time anybody seriously thought, well, we should just have a military government create a king. Not long after that, finally the treaty was signed. Washington proceeded with his entourage uh, down to Annapolis, I think the Congress was meeting at that time. And two days before Christmas, he handed back the commission, the piece of paper that had named him the commander of the Continental Army. And there's a, there's a great painting of this, there's a statue, because it's an important moment that the commander of the army in a country that kind of had no government handed this back to the Continental Congress, which was a, uh, a confederation, a meeting of the various state governments. And a French officer, and, and, and uh, I think it was Gary Wills who wrote, at that moment, the ancient legend of Cincinnatus was resurrected. And a French officer who wrote a book about the new country of America summed it up this way. This is the seventh year that he has commanded the army and that he has obeyed the Congress. More need not be said. But I'm going to say one more thing about it. At that time, the American Benjamin West was in London painting a portrait of George III. And it is said that the king asked the painter, well, what will Washington do now? And Benjamin West replied, they say he will return to his farm. And George III said, if he does that, he will be the greatest man in the world. And perhaps he was. He had seen Mount Vernon only for a few days in the six years that he had led the army. His beloved Mount Vernon, writers always say, he did love the estate, the work there, the house, the family, six years away from it. And then after five years back at his beloved Mount Vernon, he was called back to service to chair the um, Constitutional Convention and then obviously to become president. And as president, Washington didn't play a major role in writing the Constitution. He chaired it. He occasionally helped people settle disputes, but he wasn't one of the partisans or the intellectuals battling in the convention. He was presiding over it. But once it was written, he took the Constitution very seriously. He wrote, the Constitution is the guide which I will never abandon. And his copy is carefully marked up with marginal notes to show the powers and obligations of the different branches. Rumor is that there is no such marked up constitution in the Bush Library or the Obama Library <laughs> or the current Oval Office. Um, Washington took it very seriously. He tried to retire in 1792. He did want to go back to Mount Vernon, and he did not intend to be a permanent president. He tried to retire in 1792. He wrote a farewell address, but he was persuaded, we're not out of the woods yet, we still need you as president. Uh, in 1796, he said, I'm going to retire. There were still people who said, no, you can't leave. And at that point, he put his foot down, and he said, this is not a republic if it has an indispensable man. So we have to find out now if we are indeed a republic of public citizens. Uh, so he did write his farewell address. He did retire to Mount Vernon, and unfortunately, he didn't live very long after that. But through these two dramatic resignations, turning in his sword and then turning over the presidency to John Adams, he established a pattern for our republic, as Rob said, that nobody serves more than two terms, a rule that lasted until it met the power lust of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, um, but also for other republics, that the whole point of a republic is the people govern and there's rotation in office. When you think that our first three presidents were Washington, Adams, and Jefferson, and the last three are Bush, Obama, and Trump, it's hard to believe in the theory of evolution.
I have to say, things can seem pretty bleak right now. As Steve Davies was talking about ideas and threats that we thought were dead are back from the ash heap of history, authoritarianism on both the left and the right, not just Russia and China, which we kind of expected, although they are getting worse right now, but Turkey, Egypt, Hungary, Venezuela, the Philippines, maybe India, and too close for comfort in France and Austria in the recent elections. And even here in the land of the free, people are talking about nationalism and socialism and protectionism and threats to liberal norms. But we Americans have faced dark days before. Think about that first great fight for American freedom, the revolution. And don't think about it from today's perspective, but imagine what the colonists were thinking about, that a small band of farmers was going to square off against the greatest imperial army in the world. Thomas Paine wrote in December 1776 in one of the numbers of common sense, these are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will in this crisis shrink from the service of their country, but he that stands by it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. And he held people together for a little while. But a year later, just before Christmas 1777, Washington's army took up winter quarters at Valley Forge near Philadelphia. Then came a cruel race with time to get huts erected before the soldiers, barefoot and half naked, froze to death. Hundreds of horses starved to death. And the soldiers were not that far from starvation. And then, after that successful fight, the fight against slavery, an institution that had existed from time immemorial in virtually all parts of the world until the rise of libertarian ideas in England and America created a movement for abolitionism. And we've all read of the horrors of the Middle Passage and the regime of legalized violence that sustained slavery on the plantation. Reports and novels about the reality of slavery helped to change people's minds, but the fundamental principle that motivated the abolitionists was liberty. Compared to the hardships of Valley Forge and plantation slavery, the New Deal may seem a minor problem, but it did present a fundamental challenge to economic freedom and constitutional government. Everyone said the market has failed. There was an atmosphere of crisis. Pseudo-solutions passed in panic. In the early months of Franklin Roosevelt's presidency, it was like passing a Patriot Act and a um, uh, stimulus bill and a tarp every day. Every day a new panic solution without congressional hearings or anything power flowing to Washington and within Washington to the president in defiance of the Constitution. And then war, a world war. Joseph Schumpeter in 1941, looking at the effects of the New Deal and what he anticipated was coming, said, I cannot help feeling that this will be the end of the American way of life. Two years after that, 1943, look at a map of Europe. Go Google Europe 1943. It's in the hands of dictators except for England. And in that darkest year, the libertarian, movie, the libertarian movement was born or reborn. Three remarkable women in that dark year of 1943 wrote three great books. Isabel Patterson wrote The God of the Machine. Rose Wilder Lane wrote The Discovery of Freedom. And most famously, Ayn Rand wrote The Fountainhead. And that really was the launching of the modern libertarian movement or the revival of classical liberalism after a period where it had been eclipsed. Now we have a much bigger movement. We have a movement that spans the globe, uh, a movement that does, in fact, have a lot of triumphs under its belt at this point. But freedom is under assault again. Statism is on the march, old horrors in new packaging. And it's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to let the immensity of the challenge stop us. 
But it didn't stop Thomas Paine. It didn't stop Frederick Douglass. It didn't stop Rose Wilder Lane, Isabel Patterson, and Ayn Rand. And we cannot let it stop us. James Madison warned us that enlightened statesmen will not always be at the helm, to put it mildly. If we didn't know that before, we know it now. And we know that many of the great liberating changes in American history, from abolitionism to the tax cuts of the 1980s to gay marriage and marijuana liberalization in the past few years, did not start in Washington. They did not start with politicians. They came from the people. They came from activists around the country chafing at the bonds they lived under. In a book called Engines of Liberty, How Citizen Movements Succeed, David Cole, who's a law professor, writes about three recent movements for legal and political change, marriage equality, human rights in the war on terror, and the movement to ensure that the Second Amendment means what it says, spearheaded by Cato's own Bob Levy and Clark Neely. And the common thread in the book is that individual citizens had a vision of something that was wrong and a determination to fix it. And they were willing to work years or even decades, sometimes without visible success for a long time, to bring about that vision. And in each of these cases, they were successful. And if you're in a battle like that, whether it's for school choice or against the war on drugs, and you weren't expecting it to take this long, then go stream the movie Amazing Grace and watch the story of William Wilberforce who spent 50 years fighting for the cause that was important to him and the cause that was important to him was ending slavery and it took him 50 years to convince the citizens of the greatest liberal country on earth that they needed to end slavery. The vision of the Cato Institute is the vision of the American founders. It's right there in our mission statement, free, open, and civil societies in the United States and throughout the world. Um, I was over on Thursday at the Museum of the American Revolution here, and at the end of the main exhibition there, there is this statement from Thomas Jefferson in the last letter he ever wrote a few days before the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, and it says, all eyes are open or opening um, to the rights of man. It's just the rights of man. All eyes are open or opening to the rights of man. They're still opening. <laughs> They're not entirely open, but the progress still happens. And that is the founder's legacy to us. More than 200 years ago, Thomas Jefferson and the other signers of the Declaration of Independence committed themselves to the cause of American liberty with these words. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. And they weren't kidding. Twelve signers had their homes ransacked and burned by the British. Nine more died from wounds or hardships of the Revolutionary War. None, however, lost their sacred honor. We have it easier. No one will demand our lives or our fortunes in this country if we speak out. All we have to do is write letters to our public officials and letters to the editor and speak out at public meetings or speak up against subsidies and regulations in trade associations and chambers of commerce. Give a book to a friend, give a book to a young person, give money to a candidate, join a group working for tax cuts or free trade or an end to the war. But we do have to do that because we know, as the founders did, that freedom isn't free. There's a statue that stands in downtown Chicago in the heart of a great enterprising city, hog butcher for the world, tool maker, stacker of wheat, or today we might say allocator of capital for the world. It shows George Washington flanked by two men who also made the American Revolution, Robert Morris and Haim Solomon, who provided the funding that kept Washington's troops in the field and also kept men like James Madison able to afford to live in Philadelphia for the duration of the Continental Congress. And I always think we should let that statue be a symbol of our partnership and our commitment to the cause of freedom and that we must not let ourselves fail 
to live up to their example. Thank you. writing down the names of those who didn't stand. <laughs> um, are we doing questions or are we moving on? I'm happy to take questions. I always used to tell Ed Crane the reason people want to fly around and give speeches is people like being the center of attention. So if anybody's got questions, I'm happy to take them. If they're actually about history, fortunately there are people in the audience who can answer them. Peter at the introduction mentioned Ronald Reagan and it reminded me when Ronald Reagan was elected I thought finally we have a president that is an American and loves America. From now on things will look up. Now 30 years later it seems to me that we're still firmly on the road to serve them again. R Ronald Reagan was just a little bump in the road to serve them. Am I, am I too pessimistic? Yeah, I think so. Um, but it's, it's common in libertarian audiences. And, you know, I think, it, it, maybe it's not just libertarians, but I think libertarians do have a tendency to think, oh my God, we used to be free and now everything's getting worse and worse. Um, we used to have the boilerplate description of the Cato Institute, I think we changed it. But we had this description that talked about the glories of the American Revolution and then said, since that revolution, personal and economic liberties have eroded. And then one day, Clarence Thomas, who was not yet a judge, came and spoke at Cato. And one of the things he said was, it does not look that way to black Americans. And I think we felt chastened and we said, yeah, we have to change that. That's not entirely true. Some civil and economic liberties have eroded, some have expanded. Now, you didn't talk about the founders, you talked about Reagan. So 37 years ago, Reagan became president. Some good things happened. Um, some bad things have happened since then. And you could come to a Cato Benefactor Summit and listen to my colleagues tell you the bad things that are happening in healthcare and free trade and entitlements and all those things for a couple of days. And that's valuable because that's what we do. And the reason things don't go entirely bad is that we push back against them, we fight them. Places like the Cato Institute do criticize these things. But we just had a 40th anniversary. Well, we're still celebrating all year our 40th anniversary. And so that's a little bit longer than Reagan, but let's think back to 1977 when Cato was founded and when uh, Jimmy Carter was inaugurated. What was the state of the world then? Well, actually I'm gonna go back like three years earlier when I was in college, because that, that gets one big advance. When I was a college freshman, I sat in the hallway of the dorm one afternoon with all the other guys in the dorm listening to someone drawing birthdays out of a hat to determine which of us would be sent to Vietnam against our will. Libertarians fought the draft, and we got rid of it. Um, in the Jimmy Carter years, and now we are within the 40 years of the Cato Institute, think about 1977. 1977, the top marginal tax rate in the United States was 70%. A third of the world was under Soviet control. Um, we didn't know what might change at that point. One of the things that changed in the Carter years was a significant amount of deregulation of finance, telecommunications, and transportation, old New Deal regulations still hanging around that were swept away in about a three-year period, which is not to say there weren't new regulations, particularly in energy being imposed at the same time, so it's an ongoing fight. Um, another thing, I never paid much attention to this, but another thing my colleague Gene Healy says, also, the limitations on home brewing were lifted during the Carter administration. So at least when you heard about the energy regulations and he was making you keep your thermostat down, you had beer. Um, then, of course, Reagan came in, 
that marginal tax rate went down from 70% to 50% to 28%, so that's a pretty good uh, change. Um, there have been some other deregulations. Well, for one thing, Reagan deregulated the price of energy as soon as he came into office. Um, there have also been advances in a lot of social freedoms. Um, another thing that happened, I think, in 1978 was that CNN went on the air. Another thing, maybe the same year or the next year, was that both Apple and Microsoft companies were created. And all of those things have had a hugely liberating effect. You know, one of the things that Thomas Jefferson was so concerned about was that knowledge be in the hands of the people, not just the priests. This is one of the things Protestants didn't like about the Catholic Church. They wanted everybody to read the Bible for themselves. And Thomas Jefferson wanted public education, which maybe turned out to be a bad idea. But, but he wanted the public to be educated, and that was a good idea. Um, now, every one of you has in your pocket right now all the knowledge in the history of the world. Maybe not all the wisdom, but at least all the knowledge in the history of the world. Incredible access to knowledge. That's a good thing. And breaking up the three-network television monopoly is also a good thing, even though on any given night that you're watching CNN, Fox, or MSNBC, you might have trouble remembering that that's a good thing. But it's still good to have more competition in the media. Um, and it's also true libertarians sometimes ignore some of these social advances that we talk about. So we have had some progress in uh, drug laws a little bit, um, still very fitful. And I must say, drug laws and school choice are two things that I thought we would have made more progress on over the past 20 years. So that is disappointing. I mean, I need to go watch the uh, Amazing Grace movie too to remind myself that um, we might make progress one of these days. But also, the opening up of American society and economy to allow women, people of color, gay people to participate in society and economy and political world in a way that they had never been able to in the past. All of those things are progress. Now, as I say, I could spend the next 10 minutes talking about bankruptcy and the entitlement state and overregulation and toilet flushing and light bulbs and even that little tag on your mattress that you're not allowed to pull off. Um, but I think where we err is in focusing on the negatives and not the positives. Thank you. So one thing I hear from both the left and the right is that it seems like the solve the problems of the world is that we just have to wait for the right person to get into office. And we still kind of hear that like we're praising uh, President Reagan, but then, you know, once Reagan was gone, all hope was lost. But uh, for libertarians, how do we avoid the fall into that fallacy? And where do we get started that chip away at the things that we want? What is an issue that we can maybe find a way to where we can get our colleagues on the left and the colleagues on the right to agree that this is something that we need to get rid of? Well, if you're a libertarian, you should be over the waiting for a savior by now, because <laughs> that doesn't seem to be happening. Um, I think I mentioned a, a number of areas where we did make progress, either through left-right cooperation or not. Sometimes, you know, I mean, the right never really came along at the time with civil rights, women's rights, or gay rights, and yet all those things happened. The left didn't come along on Reagan's tax cuts. Um, now, some of the Democrats did, but the parties overlapped a little more back then. So there really were moderately liberal Republicans and moderately conservative Democrats, and much harder to find that these days. Uh, so it isn't necessarily the case that we have to get the right and the left to agree on something in order to make progress happen. The Republicans may very well pass a tax cut with some libertarian support and probably no Democratic support. Um, trying to think, it seems to me there were a couple of things Obama might have done that were good that... I could mention, but <laughs> I'm drawing a blank right now. <laughs> he did back off a little bit on um, uh, marijuana prosecutions uh, in states that, that had legalized medical marijuana. Uh, but some issues that I think some progress could be made on right now, um, 
Occupational licensing is one. You know, we tend to think of big regulations and big entitlement and everything, but occupational licensing, when I first started looking at it 30 years ago, 8% of occupations in the United States were licensed. And to some extent, hey, doctors. You really want doctors not to be licensed? Um, but now it's 25% of occupations. Interior decorators are pushing for licensing because Ladies, some of you have had the experience of an unlicensed interior decorator just doing a terrible job in your house, and you know, you don't want to go through that again. Um, barbers, I mean, my God, you get a bad haircut um, if, they, if they're not licensed. Um, so I think that there's a lot of left-right intellectual convergence about occupational licensing right now. Nobody's going after doctor licensing anytime soon, but the interior decorators and the cab drivers and some things like that. Um, the problem is there's a lot of intellectual convergence, but the reason we have licensing of interior decorators and athletic trainers is not primarily because of bad thinking, it's because of special interests the interior decorators or the athletic trainers go to the legislature and they spread a little money around and they say, hey, why don't you do this? And there's nobody there to argue against that, and so they get this. So the problem is going to be fighting the entrenched interests even if you have left-right convergence. There's an interesting story on occupational licensing. The Obama administration, although they didn't exactly do anything about it, they did put out a report late in the Obama administration on the problem of occupational licensing. And uh, my colleague, who wanted to do work on that area, wanted to know who in the, because it wasn't signed, it just said, you know, report of the White House and the Treasury, wanted to know who actually wrote this report. Um, so he made a couple of phone calls, and he found the guy who had written it, um, and he went out to lunch with this guy, who turned out to be a former Cato intern. We hadn't really kept in touch, or he hadn't kept in touch with us, so we didn't know this, but hey, a former Cato intern wrote the Obama White House report on occupational licensing. So that's an area. Um, if it were not for the Trump administration right now, then free trade would be an area where we would be pushing for more progress with the better parts of both the right and the left. Trump has sort of upended that, and I don't know where that goes right now. Criminal justice reform is another area. We've just hired a couple of top lawyers to work at Cato on the issue of criminal justice reform. Um, the uh, Coke operations are very big on that, but so obviously are the public defenders, the criminal defense lawyers, the United Negro College Fund, all those kinds of organizations. So there's definitely possibly not left-right, possibly only left-libertarian convergence. But in fact, in a lot of conservative states, from Georgia to Texas to Utah, there's been progress on criminal justice reform. And I think this is an area where you have to think about why would people support or oppose this? And I think there are three reasons that you do see conservatives moving in the direction of some criminal justice reform. One is a libertarian instinct. Maybe we shouldn't put so many people in jail. One is a Christian instinct. Maybe we shouldn't ruin so many people's lives. Is that what Jesus would do? And a third is financial. Boy, we're spending an awful lot of money on prisons. Maybe we don't need to do that. Um, so one of the things libertarians can do in a circumstance like that is help the left understand how to talk to the right on that, and other times maybe we can help the right explain occupational licensing problems to the left. So there are definitely some areas where we hope we can work on things like that. Jerry? Do you think it would be reasonable to try to change back the uh, be reasonable to try to change back the legislative uh, the legislative ability to elect the senators rather than the uh, than you mean the repeal the seventeenth amendment public. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes I, I know that's sort of a hobby horse of a lot of libertarians, and I, I do think there is a real value in first having the two houses of any legislature be elected in different ways. After all, if they're elected from the same electorate in the same way, what's the point of having two? Um, but if they represent something different, and of course this sort of comes from England, where you have the commons and the lords. Now, we don't have lords. We don't have hereditary lords in this country. Um, 
But what they did come up with was the people elect the lower house and the states as entities, which usually meant the legislature, but the states as entities will elect the upper house and therefore they will represent the interests of the state and the representatives will re represent the interests of the people. And that's what the, um, you know, the 10th Amendment talks about, to the states or the people respectively. So they were understood to be different categories. Um, these days, I don't see much political uh, likelihood of that. And I have to say, any candidate or movement who talked about this is probably going to get laughed out of court. So um, I don't think people should shy away from writing academic journal articles about it. But I think if you tried to pitch it to your Kiwanis Club or to your local county Republican committee, you're not going to get very far. One or two more questions, if they're okay. I work at a 501c3 think tank, so <laughs> I don't dabble in politics. Um, although I do have an interest in it. You know, John Allison, when he was president of Cato, was at some meeting like this and somebody did ask me a question like that, although I think it was about the Republicans in that case. And I gave what I thought was a reasonably learned disquisition. Um, and he said, David knows more about politics than anybody I know, and yet he doesn't want Cato to be involved. I said, hey, I know a lot about cl college basketball too, but it's not Cato's business. Um, <laughs> So, uh, no, I don't really know anything. Um, I don't think Gary Johnson wants to run again. The names I have heard have generally been obscure party activists. And I have to say, as someone who many years ago was in the Libertarian Party, uh, before I took myself out of the running by being at a think tank, um, and who wishes the Libertarian Party well, this past year, the Libertarian Party ran two governors against the two worst candidates ever to run for president. And they got 3.5% of the vote, which is nice, but I don't see anyone who might be the Libertarian nominee who will be a stronger ticket than two governors who served a total of 14 years. So um, I don't know who's running, but I haven't heard of anybody who could take it to the next level, as they say. All right, I saw a question over here. And go ahead and give Ken, a, uh, I'll, I'll try to give quick answers to both. Do you think sometimes libertarians look at what's happening in government too much and that's just where we get pessimistic when we have trends going on in, in society and culture that are really beneficial to us? And I think of things like um, innovations in the economy, the sharing economy, the gig economy, cryptocurrency, uh, innovations in education. Uh, even we know homeschooling is one of the, the growing areas of education, despite the fact that many states make it very hard to do that. Uh, innovations in transportation from uh, Uber and Lyft to, to other ways of making it easier. All of these trends seem to me to be giving people more power over their lives. And I think that will move up to where they will push back against some of the government regulation and over-regulation that we see as they are able to obtain more control over their lives. I'm just interested in your well, thoughts. Well, that, that last point you made is, is what I'm not so sure about. But your general point, yes. Now, part of the answer is, well, when we come together as libertarians, we are here to discuss liberty, not simply having better lives. So you may also go to classical music conventions or Uber, trade association meetings, all those kinds of things which are part of having a good life, we're here to discuss liberty and, and therefore we focus on politics and, and the laws. I was at a meeting of conservatives recently and one of the people there said, you know, I gave this talk the other day to a group of young people and I said, you people live in such a fantastic world. You have all the knowledge in the history of the world in your pocket. You have so many new businesses opening up that you could be part of. Um, you can live, pretty soon you're gonna be able to live anywhere in the world um, while doing virtually any job. Um, pretty soon you're gonna be able to uh, read while you drive to work. Uh, if you choose not to live on an island and not drive anywhere to work. You live in such a fabulous world. And he said, I think the rights 
message of everything is going to hell just doesn't resonate with millennials because they just don't see a world that is going to hell. Um, and then, interestingly, one of the older conservatives there said, part of the reason for this is because we've always raised money through direct mail, and you don't raise money through letters that say, things are pretty good. Um, you send letters saying everything is, is getting terrible, and you have to stop it. And that became our message, so that's a problem. Our friends over at Reason Magazine absolutely make this point that you make, that we just talk too much about politics and we should be looking at the world and everything is freer and, and the, the world is becoming globalized. More and more people around the world are becoming part of the world economy and that's a wonderful thing for the Chinese people because they no longer live in huts with pigs. Um, they actually get to eat the pigs, which they couldn't afford to do before. Um, even Africa is getting to be part of the world economy. But it's also good for us because they're making things that we can buy. And if they can make things cheaper than we can, then we can buy them from them and we can make the things that we can do better. So everyone in the world is benefiting when the Chinese and the Indians and the Africans become part of the world economy. So you're right. Um, all of those good things are happening and that also ought to be part of an optimistic message. Now, does that mean that these people therefore become resistant to regulation. I don't know about that. Uber was a good example of proving that you could make them. Uber had well-connected, affluent, young, articulate, at least in an emailing sense, uh, constituents. And so when a city like Austin tries to shut them down, they've suddenly got this mobilized group who can fire off a text to their legislators right away. Didn't work in Austin. Uber still got shut down. Um, but I don't know whether having this wonderful world is going to make them resist the regulations that constrain what could be. But yeah, we should remember that, man, this is a great time to be alive. Okay, last question right here. Before I get run out of the room and tarred and feathered, I'm gonna establish the fact that I started working in the Republican conservatism with Goldwater in 64, spent four years in the Reagan White House, two years in the Texas legislature running in the conservative department and chairman of our party. And I was a never Trumper until I was a never Hillary. So I have, I have no ax to grind. But I do have this question because the whole country, including most of the people, are gone crazy. Uh, if this president, with all, he is a bad chalice for, I agree with all the negatives. I'm not arguing that point. But if in four years, he gets significant tax reform. He gets over 140 judges, not to mention the Supreme Court. He gets religious freedom increased in the United States with the getting rid of the, Jones, the Johnson Act. He lets our generals fight the wars in the places they choose to fight, and he doesn't go into places that we don't need to go into. And we have a massive rollback in government regulation, which we are seeing happen every day in Washington today. What's wrong with that presidency? Well, one answer is, if all those things happen, most of them are good, not all of them. You mentioned 140 judges. Some of the judges he has appointed look to me pretty scary. They either are very supportive of executive power or they have been recorded saying really bigoted things. And, you know, out of... 320 million people, I think you ought to be able to pick 140 judges who have not said bigoted things in print. So some of them may be fine. Um, I'm sure many of them are, but I don't take it just as a slam dunk that, oh, getting Republican judges. And by the way, I don't think that's particularly a Trump thing. That's just a Republican thing. Some Republican judges are worse than others. Also, you said let the generals run the wars that they choose, I think. Well, Well, so who would make the decision on whether we go in? Well, actually, Congress can make that decision. It's in the Constitution. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I, I would just be cautious about saying, let's let the military loose. We do have civilian control of the military. It's a good thing. Some people are saying right now we have military control of the president, and that's a good thing. Uh, but without, without judging that, then the answer is, if all of those things happened, 
and there's no nuclear war. There's no further erosion of the rule of law with regard to the Justice Department. Um, you know, this is the first president in memory who has personally interviewed the candidates for U.S. attorney in specifically Washington, Virginia, and New York, the places where there may be legal action against him. That is an intrusion on the norms of democracy. That's a bad thing. This is the first president who has declared the free and independent news media to be the enemy of the American people. He's not just criticizing bias. He's calling the journalism the enemy of the American people. That's dangerous. So, there are, and, and also, he may cause a trade war. So if he causes a trade war, if he breaks up NAFTA or causes a trade war between the two largest trading partners in the world, then that will outweigh even sweeping deregulation. So if you get all of the things on your list and none of the things on my list of fears, then yeah, that will turn out to have been pretty good, even though it will not change the fact that I think he is a crass and vulgar man with no respect for the Constitution. Um, but if he doesn't do any of the things that I'm worried about, then yes, that will be good. I don't see him doing all those good things and not those bad things. And I understand, with any president, whether it's Reagan or Obama or whoever, we have to weigh some good, some bad. Um, I'm still worried that this will be a, a worse balance sheet than what you're talking about. But if you get that balance sheet and there's kind of nothing on the liability side or nothing major, then it'll be good. All right, thanks everybody, thanks for being here. Hope to see you at the next one.